Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to read your word. We pray, Father, as we come to understand the letter of Obadiah, strengthen us, help us to understand its message of hope in amongst your judgment, that we might live for your sake and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I continue to walk in my Christian life, I'm always wondering, why does the Christian church appear so weak? Our churches seem so small in comparison to our communities. Christians seem to be struggling to make headway in the culture. Our society continually disregards or ignores our message. Yes, by and large, Sydney Anglicans preach a very faithful and godly message, as do many other churches and denominations throughout this city and across this nation. Yet, Christians are largely ignored. Worse yet, the society as a whole, basically ignores what God has to say in his word. Politicians ignore us, society silences us, and the culture often disdains us. Yes, sure, society will often tolerate Christians as long as we don't say anything that might offend it. But if we say what we believe, we can be vilified, ostracised, or even fired for hate speech. The Christian church appears weak. And so we as Christians can be discouraged by the way things seem. The state of the church looks dire. And as we look at the culture, we can think it's hopeless. Australia looks down upon us. There's nothing we can do. Today we are looking at Obadiah's vision from God as he speaks to the nation Israel. Now, this is the smallest book in the Old Testament, and this is given to Israel when things for the nation seem at their bleakest, seem at their direst hour. And God's message to the Israel, God's word to Israel, to this nation at this time is, do not lose hope. Do not give up, despite how things will look, despite how bad things seem. God will prevail. To understand this vision from from God to Obadiah, we do need to know some of the context and some of the historical background of what is going on here. God sends this vision to Obadiah, uh, to Israel from Obadiah, at the point in history where Israel has been destroyed by the Babylonians. Israel has been continually in rebellion against Israel, uh, against God and God has been sending prophet after prophet and saying, repent, turn, and Israel has ignored the message. And finally, God has sent Babylon in and destroyed the nation and Israel is being carted out of the land and has been taken to the Babylonian Empire. And God is saying to the Israelites at this point in time, this vision comes to them and God is saying, Do not lose hope. And he says it in a very strange way by preaching and telling the Israelites about their brother, about the nation of Edom. And the Edomites, as I just said, well, as I was saying, were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And that is the context of this letter. God is sending a vision to Obadiah about Esau, about Edom. And he's telling the Israelites what will happen to Edom, what will happen to this brother of theirs who has treated them badly. 
so that they will not lose hope. And he does that through three points that the letter makes to teach Israel to give Israel hope. And the first thing that we learn, the first point that comes out from the letter, that comes out in this vision, is that God will judge the pride of the nations. God will judge the pride of the nations. The vision opens with a picture of Edom and it shows where Edom is placing its trust. They place their trust in their position, in their strength. They are a nation that's located to the east of the Israelites and they're located in the hill country and it's a rocky uh, hill country. And the reason why they're there is they're thinking, well, we're surrounded by rocks, we're surrounded by a fortress, we are safe in our rocks. And if you want to understand just how uh, safe and impenetrable their rocks were, if you've ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and you see Indiana at the end of the movie is walking through this narrow ravine and it opens up into this canyon and there's this magnificent temple in front of them. That is in the country of Edom, that, that area. And what you see on the screen is how it looks in actuality, if you go to the city of Petra today, it's this narrow ravine leading into the the city and it was a very defensible choke point. Edom was placing its trust in the place where it was in the rocks because it says, well, no one can get us here. We're safe. We're protected. And this is what God says to Edom in verse 3. Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground? Edom is trusting in its strategic position. It's saying, well, no one, no military can get us here. We are safe. We can be safe of our position. And they're taking pride in their position. They're taking pride of where they stand. And God says, you are being arrogant. You think your safety, you think your fortress in the rocks will protect you? It will not. You have placed your pride in the wrong thing, Edom. But that is not the only place they've placed their pride. We also see that they've placed their pride in their alliances. And this is what God says in verse 7. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. See, God is saying to Edom, all those alliances, all those strategic partnerships you have created for yourself, all those those military mites that you think will protect you, no, they will be turned against you. Your fortresses will not stand. See, this is what man does. We look at our situation, we build our little nest eggs and our little security and we think, ha, I will be safe. I will be protected in this area. This is my safe place and no one can get me. And God says, no. Wherever you place your pride, whatever you think is your strength, I will bring it down. No one will protect you from me. God knows what we are like. 
God knows we place and like to place our security in the things of this world. We think the things in this world will stand against his might and more importantly that it will stand against his judgment. And God says no. We read in verse 10, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. God is saying to Edom, you are going to be brought down. You will be shamed. Wherever you put your hope, your judgment will be completely and utterly against you and you will be destroyed. And you see in that last little section, you hear that little echo and this is why you need to understand that Edom is the descendants of the brother Esau of Jacob's brother because of violence done. See, what the Edomites had done as Israel had been destroyed, and you see this in the letter, is that they watched on with joy as Israel was destroyed. They may have participated, but they certainly profited from the destruction of Israel. They gloated over their destruction. Instead of mourning for their brother, instead of looking at the situation and caring for Jacob, as the refugees fled out of the nation, they handed them over to the Babylonians. They had no care. They had no love. They sought to destroy profit and gloat over what happened to Israel. They were thought themselves safe. They thought themselves secure. They thought themselves, well, the Babylonians will never get, get against us. We have our treaties. We have our fortresses. We will be safe. And what God is saying to Edom is this. No, I will bring you down. But not only will I bring you down, you should know better. And Edom should have known better. They should have remembered their history. They should have remembered where they came from. God is saying to the nation, you know your brother Jacob. You came from his very loins. You shared a father who was Isaac. And when your brother was destroyed, instead of caring for him, you overjoyed in seeing his destruction. You gloated over him. You profited from his destruction. How many times in the biblical narrative have we seen brothers betraying brothers? From the very first brothers, Cain and Abel, to Joseph and his brothers, where his brothers send Joseph and sell him into slavery in Egypt. It is a common theme throughout the scriptures that the brothers sell each other out. And here Esau sells out Jacob. And God holds Esau, Edom, accountable to know its history, to know that it is brother, it is the brother of Israel, to know where it came from. Edom is supposed to know its history. Why does this apply? Because Christianity is about History. The Bible records God's historical interaction with his people to save them. God saves his people. God interacts, intervenes in history so as to deliver his people. And the Bible records this salvation narrative over and over again. That is the reason we study the Bible. Because God reveals himself as he delivers his people throughout history. And as God reveals himself through the narrative, as he shows us who he is, we are called to respond 
to that character, to that nature, to that salvation. In the case of Edom, as descendants of Esau, God expects them to know their history and he expects them to respond to the plight of the Israelites. Instead, they metaphorically stand above their brothers and scoff at their plight. They took pride in their fortresses and alliances and they thought themselves safe from a similar fate. Instead of learning from history, they have forgotten it. And God says, I will bring you down as I will bring down the rest of the nations. Wherever the nations take their pride, that is where I am going to bring them down. Whatever we value, where we find our security, if it is anything other than God, then on the day of judgment, it will not stand. Which brings us to the second part and the central feature of this letter. And it comes in verses 15 to 18. And it's simply this. God manifests his power in the weakness of his people. God manifests his power in the weakness of his people. Reading from verse 15. And I want you to hear it through the ears and think of yourself as an Israelite who's been dispossessed from your nation. As you leave your land that is on fire. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and as, and it be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Sion and it will be holy. The house, the house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be a stumble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. There will, therefore no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Israel has been destroyed. The nation is in ruins. But God says to them, I have judged you because of what I have done. But look on, though I have judged you as my people, though the nations might look on you and despise you, their time is coming and things will be reversed. As the nations look at Israel, as Edom looks at Israel, it looks like it's been totally wiped from the earth. But God says, I will turn this around. Look at verse 17. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion. You mean that mountain, that hill with the temple that's now a a giant pile of rubble, a deliverance is going to come from there. You're going to deliver Israel from that city that is destroyed. Are you, are you mad? But that is what the point of the letter is about. God is saying things are not as they appear. Instead of being dispossessed as slaves, they will be the possessors and the masters. Instead of being put to flames, they will be a flame that burns all before them. And it's a play on words, but God is saying to Israel, 
Things look dire. Things look bleak. You might be dispossessed, but God will turn things around. It looks incredible. It doesn't look possible. How can God do this? How is God going to bring deliverance from Jerusalem? Especially now the city and the temple don't exist. But God says, and God is going to do, God will manifest his power in the weakness of his people. Personally, I find this a very hard and strange idea to accept. I don't know about you. I don't like weakness. I don't like to feel weak. I don't like the idea that others have power over me. I was bullied terribly as a child. And so, and I don't say this to generate sympathy. I say this because I know what it's like to be a victim. I know what it feels like to be powerless, to feel humiliated and mocked. And I've got to be honest, I don't want to go back there. It's a horrible feeling. And then I hear and I'm reminded, but God manifests his power in the weakness of his people. God displays his strengths just when people feel at their lowest, at their weakest, when they feel like they can do nothing. Now, we need to be careful at this point. Our culture has turned victimhood as just another means for a power grab. Our culture uses victimhood as a means of attaining power and it's a wrong thing to do as it mocks real victimhood. But true weakness, true powerlessness means being completely humiliated. It means being at a loss of control of your situation and your circumstances. True weakness means I don't know where to turn. I don't know which way to go. And as you think about Israel, that's the situation they're in. They're being led out of their land. They are slaves of a foreign power. Their nation that God had promised them is in rubble. Where are they to go? Who are they to turn to? And God says, everything as that looks now will be reversed. You might things look, think things look dire, but I will change them around. Trust me, things are not as they seem. And here comes the incredible promise and the third aspect of this letter. You've got to remember, this is being said to a nation that has just lost their kingdom. And God says this, that his kingdom, the one that is to come, God's kingdom will stand forever. Reading from verse 19. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria. That while Benjamin will possess Gilead, the exiles of the Israelites who are in Hala and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zarephad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will, will ascend Mount Zion. 
to rule over the hill country of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. At the start of this sermon, I painted a deliberately dire picture and it's often how we view the church as being weak and that society is against us. And that's how often we see how uh, the society portrayed Christians in the church. It's dying. The society is becoming less Christian. But if you look at the data, yes, the society is becoming less Christian if you look at the census, but not by a whole lot. From 2006 to 2011, the number of people who claiming to be Christian moved from 64 to 61%. And when you look at those who were attending churches, the number didn't change. When you look at the Sydney Diocese or the Sydney City in 2011, the number of people claiming to be Catholic was 28.3 and Anglican 16.1. That means roughly 44% of the city claims some sort of Christian affiliation. That means roughly a little less than 50% of these of people that you meet in Sydney claim to be Christian. One in two. Now, I know not everybody who claims to be Christian is Christian. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, and my point isn't about demographics, is things are not always as they appear. I know the church has challenges. I'm not underlying or not denying that. But the future doesn't belong to secularism or atheism. In fact, nearly every demographic study I've seen across the globe shows that atheism is on the decline across the globe. And my point is this. Things aren't always what they seem. And when it comes to the future, there is nothing more true than this. The future belongs to God. History belongs to God. How many times have you heard the phrase, history is on our side? You know what they're really saying? God is on our side. Let me tell you, God is on God's side. And the question is, are you on God's side or you're against God? But history is on God's side. And God is driving history towards his purposes. God is not going to fail. He wants the Israelites to know that and he wants us to know that. God is not going to fail. God's kingdom will stand forever. And no better case, no better point comes up than really where the nation of Edom ends. Because this is not the last time in the Bible Esau and Jacob meet. They meet at another very important point in history. See, they meet at the point of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Herod, who put Jesus on trial, was an Edomian or an Edomite. As you see Jesus stand before Herod, you see the brothers of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And the brother Jacob is whipped and scorned and bleeding and mocked. And he stands silently condemned by Esau. And that brother went to the cross and he died for the sins of his people. In apparent weakness, 
God showed his strength and delivering his people for the forgiveness of their sins. The vision of Obadiah points to Christ. It points to what Jesus has done for us. As we look at this letter, we are reminded that we should place our hope that God will judge the nations, that God will manifest his power in the weakness of his people and that God's kingdom in doing so will stand forever. And it calls on Christians to put their trust and their hope in what Jesus has done for them. My hope and my prayer for you this day as you read this letter, as you look at this world, is to not look at the world and think, oh, all is hopeless. The world is against us. The world may be against us, but God is for us. And if God is for us, then nothing in the world will ever stand against us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died upon the cross to forgive us our sins. We know, Father, that history is on your side, that you will not fail to bring about your purposes and your promises, that your kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Father, that we will come to trust in your promises to us through Jesus, knowing that you will not fail and that we'll put our hope and our trust in him forever and ever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.